You're listening to the Crowdfunding Nerds Podcast, a podcast that will help you succeed before, during, and after your crowdfunding event. And now, here is your host, Andrew Lowen. Hey, everybody, and welcome to another awesome episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. I am your host, Andrew Lowen, and I am joined, as always, by my fearless co-hosts, Sean and Rick. Hey. I survived the cougar this week. <laughs> yeah. The overcame. I, 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 I can run faster than a cougar. Only in my dreams. <laughs> and on the podcast, thankfully. So as a podcast, we talk about marketing in every single episode. And I find that marketing is a topic that people really want to hear about. Of course, when they're gearing up for a Kickstarter, when they reach that point after their Kickstarter, when they want to you know, get people to find their pledge manager before that closes. And then also, of course, when they go to retail or, or start selling when they have stock to sell. You know, crowdfunding news is something that I think everybody wants to know about. Uh, Business-related stuff and, you know, just even campaigns that are doing things really well or campaigns that are, you know, doing things strangely. So on this episode, we're going to actually talk about several different uh, pieces of news that are quite significant and just weigh in on them. And then in future episodes, expect us to have smaller segments on news, newsworthy things that you, we think you should know about. In addition to all of our marketing shenanigans that we discuss on a weekly basis, we feel like that would add more value to you guys as, as listeners, and it would uh, give us more stuff to talk about. I guess I don't know. <laughs> Let's do this. And now it's time for news. That was supposed to be an echo, but it didn't quite work out. That's pretty good though. <laughs> I don't have the uh, reverb uh, switch on my on my microphone, so I couldn't. Uh... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's a key. Now, <laughs> yeah, it is. It definitely is. Steamon has just announced their shipping prices for their Marvel Zombie Side game, and a lot of people are not happy. And the reason they're not happy is because they don't understand the shipping craziness that's that's happening lately. <laughs> you know, Chris Birch talked about this in our podcast. That we did in November. I can't remember what episode it is, but we'll include the link in the show notes. And he said during the time of that podcast recording, which was in November of last year, he said that the cost of shipping, I think he said 500 boxes of like Ticket to Ride, as kind of standard board game box from China to the US used to cost $6,000. And at the time of recording that podcast, it was $36,000. So there's been an astronomical increase in shipping. And his conclusion was that backers is going to have to get used to paying more for shipping and basically getting less for their buck, you know, bang for buck wise. Like games are going to probably be smaller and you're going to see a lot more card games being developed. So we jokingly, we jokingly made a, a post in our community saying, why don't we crowdfund a, a factory that we could produce board games in the US? <laughs> and, uh, which might be, might be, um, becoming a bit more of a realistic goal if these uh, shipping prices don't resolve themselves pretty soon. Yeah, there's a couple things going on with that. First first of all, everyone's still under the Amazon mindset where it's like, ah, free next day shipping. And, uh, you know, when you have a large uh, network like that, you can make things happen. The costs are absorbed in other ways. Uh, but in this case, <clears throat> the majority of our board games are coming from China. And uh, I mean, there are there are some really great uh, piece and part manufacturers here in the U.S. It's just, you know, it's a price thing, um, you know, especially like I know, Andrew, you I mean, when you were making your um, your prototypes, um, I mean, I think it was what a hundred bucks a piece just for the, the prototype. 
I mean, it yeah, was, it was about 150 bucks a piece uh, from US based manufacturers like short run printers. Yeah. And then which is, in China, which is pretty good, to be honest. I know that it might sound like a lot, but it, you know, manufacturing is a numbers game, right? So the more you produce, the cheaper it becomes. So if you're getting what, like five prototypes, then you can understand why it's those, those prices. Yeah, and also the, I believe those 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 uh, facilities that do that are also more of boutique facilities. They're not really designed for like heavy production, but I could be wrong on that. But I believe they're more for short term. Like here's twenty copies, and I'm done. Exactly, um, and that's why they charge the prices that they do, so that they can make their money. The Game Crafter and Print Play Games are the a couple that I use. There's also like drive through cards and other other sites like that that. We should, we should probably try to get someone from GameCraft on the podcast soon because I wonder if they are now going to try to break into the space, maybe expand their horizons, try to offer some yeah. solutions for U.S. companies. Because especially if you just have a, a board game which only has card elements. Like I don't understand how it's it's cost-effective to have something made in China, shipped across the world, and, and then be fulfilled in the U.S. when it's literally card. It's like ink and paper. Yeah. It's, it's, like not, it's not like there's like some type of you know, special... But it'll still those. it'll still cost you like you know fifty bucks for that one little card box once you get yep. it customized. However, you know if you want a great uh, return on investment, what you do is you buy go to Walmart. They got the, these generic uh, you know fifty two card decks for like a buck, and then you go to like the uh, the printing section where you get those mailing labels, and you just put mailing labels all over the cards, and then you you could print on them or, or write your your new cards. And there you go for just a few bucks, you have your own brand new homemade homebrew game. That's going to Kickstarter, guys. <laughs> It's going to be a Seems big one. not very easily scaled. <laughs> so, well, it sounds good just for prototyping. What if, what if you make it so like, it's like a PDF and people just print it, print, you know, print the labels at home and then just stick them on their own cards. There you go. <laughs> I mean, that's like ultimate, but I think board games uh, these days, it's, it's going from like the cheap, basic family board style games. And now they're becoming premium. Um, you know, there's a lot of these games have more, you know, complexities. Uh, they got more parts, um, you know, they're longer times yet. We're still paying, a lot, of a, lot of, a lot of plastic. Mm. Well, I like the wood ones. I like my, my wood meeples. But it's the, it's still the prices. I th- I think, you know, the prices have been been fine. I'm, I'm okay paying, you know, 60 to $90 for a game if I think it's a really high quality game. Because, you know, it's it is what it is. It's it's a product that you use. And, you know, people I, I guess we're still under the uh, in America, we're still under the uh, consumerism. Uh, oh, the, my printer's out of ink. I'm going to throw it away because buying a new printer is cheaper than buying an ink refill. You know, I used to do that at a, at a, at a big box store once uh, <laughs> printers would go on clearance for like $25 and the ink was like 50. So I'm like, I just get a new prayer with ink in it. <laughs> yeah, that's, well, that's true. And that's just really yeah, so yeah, definitely. I, I'm going to agree. Prices are going to go up. In fact, I believe a lot of these games that we're going to see, especially more deluxe, are going to be way over $100 now. And it's just something that we need to get our mindset to. And also the <laughs> shipping thing. Like I said, everyone's stuck on that Amazon mentality. And so, you know, we're used to having next day prime free shipping, in some cases overnight, the same day shipping free. And we're going to have to get used to if it's not coming from the U.S. or your country of origin, then it's going to be very expensive going over the oceans. Now, one thing I, I think as well, which we might start seeing is people designing games for generic minis, and therefore you don't have to buy brand new minis. You know, one thing that I did for my, my anniversary with such nerds, my wife created basically a miniature for me. It was like a, me, and I created one for her. We used Hero on, on Hero, Hero Forge, Forge right? yeah. So we did that. So now yeah. we have like these like little mini replicas of us. Uh, like, That's so and awesome. we can use them in any game we want. So when we play games now, I don't need to use like some generic fantasy character. I just use 
the one that my wife created for me and she uses the one that she, and so we've cool. painted them as well. So you might start seeing there's ways around this where you don't need to produce all these miniatures. Maybe games need to just incorporate a gen- mm-hmm. like generic miniatures. I know that uh, Modifius has done this. Uh, they've got this war game called uh, Five Parsecs from Home which basically does this. You can use any miniatures that you currently have to create you know, this adventure. So that might be a way around some of these manufacturing challenges is that people just start designing games which can use general miniatures or miniatures that people already have like i'm sure most people have like sci-fi miniatures or fantasy miniatures and you can if you go to hero forge you create your own miniature and make one look like you so uh, that's all good and fun yeah, in fact uh tabletop rpgs have done this very well for the past decade especially like dungeons and dragons and whatnot literally it's like you can buy these days yeah, I remember back in the days, Dungeons Dragons was like, okay, I have to go somewhere buy dice, I have to go somewhere else and get this, go somewhere else. And there's all these parts. And then, of course, when new stuff came out, you always had to buy new parts. But now it's like they sell a basic starter kit that's got like a couple minifigs, I think, and some dice and some basic scenarios. And then you just buy what you want. So like, oh, okay, we're time for a new scenario. Here's a book. Buy a book scenario. Oh, I need some monsters. Here's a book about monsters. And then there's also a whole bunch of RPGs like, you know, like Firefly and a couple other ones. That, you know they're they're tabletops and, and you use the same parts for all of them like you can use your dungeon dragon set for that you know as long as you have the basic yeah. tools i think if someone makes a game or a type of game or a type of kit that you can buy and you play this game and then all of a sudden each year or every six months they release a new game with the same tools i think that would be cool and i think that would sell very well yeah that, and you kind of get into you know magic the gathering territory there or you know D is a lot the uh, the same where players that play Dungeons and Dragons, they always play fifth edition or they always play 3.5 or whatever it is, because um, the rule set is something that they know and are familiar with. They want to create and have new adventures within that rule set. Maybe they'll get a really, you know, new parts. I mean, one of the things that's very popular for something like D&D is to bling out your dice set or to get terrain, you know, like you can get like Dwarven Forge is a company that sells like crazy modular terrain for D&D. And at that point, you kind of have to make a commitment to playing that one game. And, you know, board games in general, they are missing that, you know, they're missing the, you know, well, some of them, I'll say some of them do this very well, like uh, Lord of the Rings LCG or, or Marvel from Fantasy Flight Games. They do a great job hooking you into a cool system and then bringing out new sets of cards and new adventures to play and that kind of thing on a regular basis. It's like a cash cow that they can just sell a new expansion, sell a new expansion, sell a new character, you know, other things like that. So I, I, I do think that that is, there's a lot of value if you can actually do that, but it's difficult with a board game. A lot of the time with something like Marvel Zombie Side, where you know they'll have almost $500 worth of things that you can back if you want to go all in before you get into any extremely high make your own hero pledge, which I don't think they have. But you know, you go all in and it's like nine boxes of stuff. I think they had their shipping price was like $130 for the all in. And the all-in was right around, I want to say, 500 And if you wanted to... Uh, so some of this, I believe, would come faster than other boxes. So you could choose to pay for a an expedited shipping if you wanted you know, the base game faster than some of the fantastically crazy miniatures and whatnot. Those uh, expedited shipping was like $180. And I think that the problem 
that Simon has. Actually, I personally, I think that Simon is doing a really great job with their shipping. It's just a lot of money to pay for shipping. And I think that the ratio is fair, you know, like we'll say roughly, I think it was like $480 for the all-in. And then the shipping was about $130. That's about the equivalent of a $100 game and like a $35 shipping or $30 shipping. I did some quick math. It's about, it's the equivalent of about a hundred dollar game with $26 shipping. And that's not unreasonable at all. It's just that when you get to like $130, they see the bill and it's like, oh my goodness, $130 for shipping. And like Rick, you said earlier, you're, you're kind of playing in the realm of Amazon where they lose a billion dollars a year on shipping and they make their, their sellers subsidize this heavily. They still post a billion dollars. So those Audible subscriptions that they're making the money back from. I represent Audible. <laughs> Audible is my my friend. Is my friend. I think it's more of a sticker shock, like you said. Like for example, you know, you go you go on DoorDash, like oh look, dinner for ten dollars. But by the time you get the delivery fee, the gas fee, the transportation fee, the tip and stuff, it becomes thirty bucks. You're like whoa, you know, it's it's yep. it's that. Now if it's a more expensive game, like you said, if it's like you know if it's a hundred some dollar game, I don't think it's going to be that big of an impact. But it's like if it's a sixty dollar game or seventy dollar game, and all of a sudden you're now paying one hundred twenty dollars. Um, <laughs> after yeah. shipping and, and VAT and tax and everything else that they, gets tacked on. And did they have like a statue that was like a foot big? <laughs> this huge, huge kind of massive miniature. <laughs> like that's, that stuff is going to cost on shipping. Yeah, so. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The Cthulhu Death May Die was the biggest miniature I've ever seen uh, done by Simon as well. Uh, did they do another one of those for Mar? Oh, they did Galactus, uh, the giant Galactus statue. That's kind of becoming a Simon thing where people will pay for that by itself, which probably has a hundred dollar shippings on its own, but it doesn't even matter. It's just like, I just want to display that in my, my office. Desk, yeah. It's like those darn pop collectibles, think. special edition, <laughs> yeah. big size. Mm-hmm. Uh. <laughs> well, so I, I guess I'll say my, my conclusion for the whole shipping issue, containers right now are hovering around $20,000 anywhere from 17,500 to 22,500 per container. Deliverance, I promised reg- or va- uh, sorry, region-friendly shipping for six regions. China's easy. You know, Asia is easy because of printing the games in China. But there are five boats that need to go out in theory. And, you know, we're, we're talking, I mean, and the, the numbers do vary. Like if you send, I'm talking about sending a, a boat to the East Coast to land in Florida or the West Coast to land in Los Angeles. It doesn't Los Angeles still have the backlog that they're dealing with? They do. And there, there's a pretty significant problem right now with the containers. They are not able to unload the containers fast enough. And again, they might be, they're definitely still backlog, but they might be, you know, speeding this up. I haven't heard news on this in a while, but uh, they're having major problems where um, homeless people are breaking into containers because they're putting containers on the side of the road uh, because they don't have anywhere else to store them. And so uh, people are just breaking in and scattering everything everywhere and, you know, taking what they want. That's actually, I think, going to be a huge problem for really the state of California in with how all of that is just spinning out of control. And Florida is becoming a lot more popular of a destination. It's also very convenient for board game people that uh, use quartermaster logistics because Quartermaster Logistics is based out of Florida. So you want to ship there anyway, if you're using Quartermaster. 
Although I'm sure that QML has some sort of system for East Coast and West Coast, right? So the crazy thing about the shipping is that it's a variable cost because if you ship one container, let's say from Asia to the West or the East Coast of the United States, that one container, let's just say it costs you $20,000 to ship. I could probably pack about 5,000 games of deliverance in there. Um, there are a couple of strategies that, I, that I've considered. One is if they palletize deliverance, that means they seal them on pallets and, and they secure them really nicely. I can fit like 3,900 games inside a, a container and 3,900, uh, you know, 20,000 games divided by, you know, 3,900 is, or $20,000 divided by 3,900 is, you know, what it costs per game to freight across the, the ocean. Now, if I were to, uh, and this is actually something that I'm, you know, working through now, um, if I were to not palletize, that means that I would put games in and stack the games up on top of each other, they uh, would be able to put almost 6,000 games. So I'm just going to say five, but um, it's it's a real thing that people are doing to save on shipping to just not palletize and then wait until the container gets to its destination and those people put them on pallets. So you're going to get charged a little extra from a company like Quartermaster Logistics uh, after it gets there, but the gigantic shipping tag or shipping price tag is going to be spread across more units, uh, if that makes sense. But the problem is that I have to ship to five different regions. So let's just say it's 20,000 times five, that's immediately $100,000. And that's my entire shipping budget gone, right? So the, uh, you know, and, and it's gonna be very, very expensive. So what we'll probably end up doing is we'll probably look at a place like Australia, maybe um, let's just say hypothetically Canada and the UK and just say, hey, how many, how many backers are in, in each of these regions? And, you know, I've got Australia, New Zealand, very expensive to ship but I might not want to send an entire container or even a quarter of a container. A quarter of a container is still five grand or, or so, and probably more like six or, or 7,500. I don't want to send a hundred games and spend $7,500 to, uh, to do that. So I would rather airship them for 2,500 or so lose money on, you know, a hundred games air, air freighting them over and then just not have to pay that huge bill. Mm -hmm. So it's almost like minimizing my losses, yeah. you know, in certain areas. That's kind so of So Andrew, goal. did you plan for um, uh, like 20K per container shipping? So are, so can you, are you, is it slowing down your production at all? Or are you kind of like waiting it out and just waiting till things kind of cool down a bit? What's your sort of strategy for fulfillment? So I worked with, uh, you know, my logistics guy, Kirk Dennison, and uh, we calculated like seven to $8 in freight. That was what we, you know, per game, we kind of overestimated the cost when everything is all said and done, having the whole process done, start to finish, we um, over planned a little bit. And I think that we'll get close to what the prices are now, but we were basically hoping that the prices keep going down and don't spike up for some reason, because it feels like all the money is just, um, you know, we're, we're fighting to make sure that the campaign can still be profitable and all of that, where we did, I elected to ask my backers to increase their shipping pledge by $3 at, uh, you know, at the end of the day. And, uh, we just released that last, that update about, a you know, on the 30th of April and actually funny enough, because of the, the whole CMON issue with, with Marvel, 
everybody was like only $3 increase. Wow. Thank you so much for being a great publisher. You know, we really appreciate you for only raising it. Okay, so, so people, people seem to be aware then that there's going to be increases in shipping and stuff. Yeah. So there are increases. Um, just a, an interesting assessment from me and I'm still waiting for my, you know, the final shipping prices, the containers, you don't actually get your, your price until like a week before you ship. Okay. They're like, here's the price. And then you accept it or your games just get thrown into the ocean. I don't know what they do with the instead where you're like, that's too expensive. You basically have to accept the price, you know, they sell them on the black market in China. Yeah, seriously. Part of the challenge is trying to predict what the freight price will be and, and all of that so that you can actually break even and or potentially have a profitable campaign. But I'm definitely looking to manufacture uh, one full container to the US and then maybe air freighting from there, you know? Um, so not, you know, just, or just doing some air freight to from China to Australia or something like that to just save myself a little bit of money overall. Yeah. So I think that that's a, um, something that people should probably be aware of, kind of news bleeding into our topic uh, as well. In other news, we had something that happened this week that everybody seems to have an opinion on, uh, just like the shipping. We have this game on GameFound by uh, Daya Games called Euthia, uh, Euthia Torment of Resurrection and Fierce Powers ex uh, expansion. They raised 100,000, so their goal was 100,000 euros. And about 2,161 backers pledged about 500,000 euros. So they raised 500% of their goal and they canceled their campaign. Not only did they cancel their campaign from what, and I, I'm, I've tried to confirm this. I've tried to, you know, understand and kind of learn exact, like more details. So there's some of these details are fuzzy, but they, I believe they're disbanding their company as well. So it's something that there, there are a lot of layers to this onion. And I thought that we should talk about it. There are, the prototype looks amazing. What, what they were able to put together on GameFound to make the project, you know, to, to show off the project was really incredible. What they said in their, in their shutting down the campaign update, uh, which we can include in the show notes, that is, they said that they, their real goal required about 6,000 backers to make this project feasible. And so because they, they knew that they, they weren't going to get anywhere close to that by the conclusion of this campaign, that it made sense to cancel it. Now, I, I, there, there are, again, multiple layers to unpack here. The first thing is, you know, they had an artificially low funding goal and they expected a lot more backers than they actually got. They needed 1.5 million to make it worth it. I'm not exactly sure what it means when they say we need that much to make it worth it. Strange thing about this campaign is that it raised much more than its goal and they canceled. I think that the reason behind cancellation, for me, it's acceptable. You know, if, if you put a million dollars or a million and a half dollars as your funding goal, the sticker shock of that funding goal is going to make people say, you know, I just don't, I don't know if I should even back this because it's, I feel like it's never going to get funded. They actually had, so this game exists right now uh, because, you know, they had a successful funding um, at, uh, I believe on Kickstarter. And now they're launching a reprint and expansion 
for uh, their base game. So this is for me a little bit more information because you know we've worked with companies that are that print you know like for example uh, commissioned. We worked with uh, Kara Games to launch their expansion for commissioned called The Call. They funded it and they said to me, and actually I they publicized to their backers, if we don't make like forty five thousand dollars off of this campaign, I think their goal was eight thousand. They smashed that in like the first day, super easy. I mean, they, they, they increased significantly. I think they hit like $23,000 after 48 hours, which was a lot for them. And they said, you know, if we don't sell at least $45,000 of stuff, then we can't afford to reprint the base game, which means that we make an expansion, we deliver it to our backers, and then we shut down as a company because we, we wouldn't have the funds to actually... Uh, reprint the product for, you know, for sales. They basically had enough of the base game in stock to support the people that were backing the campaign. But then if they didn't make enough to do a reprint of that at the same time as they did their expansion, they just would cease to have a product to sell because you can't, can't just sell an expansion without the base game. I don't know. It sounds, it just sounds like, I don't know. I don't know if, if, if the companies that are making these games recently just aren't paying attention or not planning it around, or they're just having some really epic failures that just appear out of nowhere. It's, you know, bad luck. But I mean, it seems like it's like, they're like, oh yeah, we made gold, but now we're going to hold you hostage because now we're going to have to uh, sell this many more copies or we're going to pull out or, or now we got to double our shipping charges, even though we already charge you for shipping. I mean, so for me as a consumer, it just looks like, you know, it's like they're, 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 it's almost like a bait and switch. They're getting you in real quick. They're like, Oh, we got you in. Now we got to get you to give us more money or you won't get it. It's like hostage, hostage game, but youth, youth, Oh my goodness. It is a beautiful, beautiful piece of work. Yeah. It makes me. Yeah. I think there's three things that, that, that sort of combination of these of three things that sort of caused them to pull out. One is this thing. This game is humongous. I think they have too many pieces. Like I said, it is a beautiful game. But man, if you look at their screenshots of what you get, it is like a lot, a lot of of material. So that's one thing right there, right off the bat. Is like it's just so big. I guess that makes it vulnerable to this problem. You know, one of the one of the it, you know when we're talking about this stuff, uh, the way I, I like to kind of focus people is like, how could we have? Let's say if this company were to do this again. What could they have done differently to, to make it so that maybe they, they didn't have some of the same problems? And I think not having as much could, I mean, their funding goal would have, their real funding goal would have been less. I'm curious because part of the, the thing, the reason this really stands out as a campaign because of like all the, the amazing plastic candy that you Yeah, get. but I think they just went a little overboard. And in fact, when you combine it with the second issue, I think is the problem. They got like nine box sets to choose from. You know, like the reason why In-N-Out in California does so well is because they have like five things on the menu, period. <laughs> you go you go there, you get a burger, you yeah. get a shake, you get a drink, fries, and that's about it. You know, there's no like, you know, McFruity this and and blah, 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 that. It's just burgers, burgers, shakes, and fries. You know, so they got, yeah. so first of all, it's just humongous. And then you have like a, yeah, America. And then you got like this smorgasbord of choices. And I think that causes a lot of people to uh, make second guesses and then, you know, like they'll buy a box. Oh, wait, you know, maybe I want this one instead. They'll pull out and do no one. Then then they'll just get confused and they're like, oh, screw it. I don't want, I don't know what I want. You know, it's indecision, decision, what they call that indecision something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but so, so yeah. that was, I think that was like the number two problem. So one, one's analysis too big. Paralysis. Yes, analysis paralysis. One, it's too big. 
Two, there's too many choices. And the third one is that very, very false goal. I don't like it. That really turns me off. I mean, the company did a good job of pulling out before they pulled people's money. But on the same time, you know, if 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 you're going to put a goal just to put a goal up, just say, hey, we made our goal in five minutes. That's not the point of it. The point of the goals originally is to say, hey, if we get this amount, we're pretty we're 99 percent sure we're going to produce on that. And yeah. it seems like people these days are just putting, you know, these low low ball numbers up just to just to say that they are funded and, and hope they can write it through to the end. This might be a vestigial consequence of Kickstarter campaigns where your project is benefited from funding quickly. Sort of yes. the algorithm pushes it out. Ride the wave. I hope that GameFound would rectify that and that they would make changes and that it becomes less about funding quickly and it's more about actually like consistency in producing a game. But I do find like, it, it's difficult to comment on this because we don't have all the information. Could be lots of reasons why this wasn't being able to fulfilled i have a suspicion if you raise half a million you should be able to fund some things but that obviously i know how this you have zero knowledge on the circumstances of this but yeah it seems like a lot of money to to raise and not be able to fund and then you know we also have that the information that the company's you know disbanding so who knows what's happening behind the scenes it's basically a speculative <clears throat> company speculative. divorce Right. at this point there could, so. yeah there, yeah that's usually what happens is the partners don't want to work together anymore you know i've seen many cases over the years of partners splitting for one reason or and another one thing about this campaign as well is that everything looks professional like they've got some really bo- some really big board game reviews on this the presentation is they got like professional photography professional video so maybe the, the investment in the marketing was quite extensive and then it's just more than just trying to produce the game you also then have all the the investment of the marketing dollars that you know if you don't reach this much we're just not even to break even at this point yeah i was just gonna say this leads on to one more game that we were we were going to talk about in the news today is uh, uh, the ip blade runner rpg uh has hit kickstarter what irks me is the same thing here is um you look at it and they they're doing very well they're over a million dollars right now um by the time you guys look at this or listen to this they got about maybe two weeks week and a half left to go you know, this is already a weekend and they're 10 days in and they're already over 1.1 million with 10,000 backers. That's a very healthy number, I think. But if you look at their initial funding, let's see here. Where did it go? I lost it. $10,000. $10,000 funding goal. I mean, that, there's no re- realistic, like, that's not a realistic number in any case. Like, who would want, that's like 100 games. Who's going to go and make 100 mm-hmm. games and then break even or make profit off just 100 games? That's our goal. Like if you're going to make a mm-hmm. a board game, I'm not going to make it for just 100 people. I mean, there's three point, there's like 3.5 million people in San Diego County alone. 3.5. If you gave 100 out, it's like not not even a drop in the bucket just for San Diego. Think of national. Think of you know global. If you got a passion project, I I, I think you'd go beyond 100 people, and I think the costs would you'd need more than 100 games to sort of break even. I think cost wise, especially with shipping and everything these days. Especially with this, yep. you have an, an IP that you would have had to purchase as yes, well. Yes, licensing of... and all that other stuff. And yeah, like I said, they're doing very well. They're 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 over a million dollars. I think they'll be fine. But I, it's just another one of those those low ball. You know, hey, we funded in five seconds. You know, ten thousand dollars <laughs> is just it's nothing. I mean, like I said, what what what? what they're at like eleven thousand percent of their goal. Or so, whatever. <laughs> Many times with the low funding goal, it's artificially low, but the company expects to make a lot more. A lot of the time, I mean, to me, $10,000 seems very, very low. You couldn't produce an RPG for 10K unless you did like a print on demand option from Amazon. 
It's like about 30K for an RPG book. If you print the minimum run of 1500 units from China and then also print or, and then also freight it over and, and that sort of thing. So we know, and, and we know they're probably charging shipping separately from Kickstarter. But yeah, the funding goal being very low, I think that sometimes this can throw newer creators off. These people clearly expect, and they're saying funded in three minutes, they clearly expected that they would make a whole lot more. And uh, which I think is, is totally fine. The funding goal being so low, I think that funding 11,000% is, it kind of looks bad on you. I know that, you know, with an intellectual property, they typically have to pay an amount upfront and then they're going to pay a percentage of sales, uh, sometimes up to, you know, for really big intellectual properties like maybe Marvel or Lord of the Rings, you could, uh, you know, the company might just take 40% off the top. So this campaign really had to find a way to be profitable, you know, with numbers like that. Anywhere from really, I mean, 10 to 40% is usually what I've, what I've heard. But uh, yeah, I, I think that it's a fantastic, I mean, they clearly had an audience it's not the first project they created. They've created 29 projects and, you know, they're veterans. They've got an email list that is, you know, very, very engaged. They did, they actually have the one ring RPG. So talk about Lord of the Rings. They're used to that stuff. They've had, you know, they had 16,000 backers for their, the one ring campaign. And so they're used to this type of stuff. So they knew that they were going to fund a bunch. I, I wonder why they put that, 10k goal um, for three minutes. That's why three minutes. No, I, yeah, I think it, I, I think so. it's just a showboating uh, marketing, like a really bad. I think it's a really like horrible marketing approach. Like <laughs> knowing, gonna... like you said, for a company has made like almost 30 games, they know exactly how much they're going to get. Like they know pretty much an average what they'll have. How much do you think that this is a problem with Kickstarter itself? Because there's a review process. Do you think Kickstarter would have, you know, obviously a dedicated board games person? They'd just look at a campaign and say, hang on, your funding goal seems completely unrealistic. We're not going to approve this until you show us some numbers of how you're going to fulfill this. Like, do you think there's a bit more, like, surely Kickstarter, because it is their platform, they are, in a sense, a partner. They approve of the project if it if it's up on their site, and they are directly benefiting yep. from this. Surely they also have a responsibility to make sure that projects are fulfilled to some capacity, right? They they do have a quality assurance team. That team will look and say, "Oh, you filled twenty. You successfully fulfilled twenty eight projects. We have no worries about you fulfilling this one." You know, and I don't think that it's a you know for a company like this to do that. I don't think that it's a big deal at all. As far as their, you know, they're, they're, as long as their audience is used to this type of stuff, if they're just looking for stretch goals or, or whatever, I, I'll say that just like Uthia, you know, when you have, when your real internal funding goal is much, much higher, then uh, stretch goals are a little bit dangerous. Um, sometimes, you know, you never know when you're, you know, uh, how much you're going to raise. Uthia decided to do daily unlocks instead of stretch goals, which to me makes sense when you have a strategy that says, hey, we really need 6,000 backers. You don't want to be adding a bunch of stuff that you're not prepared for when the game is already so massive. Um, they could have probably taken one of those boxes and just turned it into stretch goals and it would have been okay. But when the uh, funding goal is, artif is so artificially low and you have a bunch of stretch goals you knock down and you don't, you're not finally... Uh, I guess, intimately involved with your manufacturer to, you know, in a platonic way, then you're going to, you could run into problems. So I understand 
that combination of things. These guys did stretch goals. So uh, you've got the uh, Blade Runner campaign. They had stretch goals at you know very low amounts, and they're going to have to. They're going up by two hundred fifty thousand. We have have a base goal of 10,000, but we have a stretch goal of (laughs) 250,000. Yeah. So basically every, every like 25 or $30,000, they are, you know, in us dollars, they're adding a stretch goal and they've got, I mean, they're at 11 or at $1 million. So they're doing like a significant amount. Yeah. Like I said, they're doing well. I'm just sort of peeved about the, uh, that fake floor. But then like you were saying, Kickstarter, right. they don't care if you make money. They want money. In fact, you know, the, the million dollars, their cut's pretty good. The ones that they're concerned about, the ones that won't fund or look like they're pretty, uh, they're not going to fund even, or they're, you know, someone's just trying to take money, money grab. Mm-hmm. That's what Kickstarter is concerned about. They don't care. I don't think they care if you, <laughs> our, 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 our funding goal is a dollar. <laughs> I don't think they'll care. <laughs> yeah. In fact, maybe, maybe we should you try know, that. Um, we should do a game with a dollar funding goal. And then be like, oh, thanks well, for thanks uh, for funding, so, but guess what? Uh, it's going to cost another five hundred dollars for us per person to to send this game to you. So if you don't pay, that's too bad. <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> yeah. Then the SEC will be knocking on your door, uh, or the Federal Trade Commission, whatever. But um, I'll say that Sean, you mentioned you wonder how much of this is a problem with Kickstarter, and I would say that this is actually a symptom of something else. We've discussed all sorts of different aspects of why a company might do the artificial funding goal, except for one. And I think that's game uh, gamifying or rather gaming the system. So Kickstarter has its algorithm where, you know, projects that raise more money, have more backers and, you know, more comments and so on reach the top of their discovery charts. If you want to discover what's the latest in RPGs or in, you know, board games or whatever, you, you can do that. Uh, by hitting the discovery button on Kickstarter's menu, um, I can actually find tabletop games and, you know, all the RPGs are kind of thrown in there. So when you look at this, I mean, Blade Runner right now is, at, you know, on my screen is number nine and it's 11,692% funded. I mean, there's a reason that it's up high. I think that, you know, maybe some people have the understanding that the you know, they believe the Kickstarter algorithm, the, the higher percent funded they go, the higher they show on the... Yeah, because they're, they're well, on my screen, they're on the taking off section. They're actually number two on that, that section mm-hmm. within games. But yeah, I think that um, it does probably have something to do with it. I, I would wager that the actual amount funded, the number of backers, all of that is, you know, relevant. But um, I do think that if you wanted to game the system a little bit that that funding goal being set low is probably going to aid with that. It seems Kickstarter is more like social media these days than anything else. I mean, like, you know, when the Kickstarter, the original Kickstarter back in the days, the point of Kickstarter was to earn enough money so you could make your, your dream possible. And now it's more like, you know, we've talked about this a few times. You have to have a finished, polished product. You have to have all this. Pretty much, I think these companies now are just using it as a platform just to get, it's like, it's like, it's like having your own, like, you know, eBay or Amazon store now. Literally, like, you know, you're going to fund because you've already done like 20, 20 something games. So, but it's just easy source of income because, oh, it's a board game. It's, you know, boom, or a role playing game. So I think a lot of companies now are using it more like a selling platform as opposed to a fundraising platform, I guess is what my, my concern is. Do you guys think that Uthia could have reached its funding goal on Kickstarter? 
I don't know, like so, so much of your traffic is, is self-generated, isn't it? You know, I, I kind of see the organic side of Kickstarter as a supplement, not something that's going to necessarily carry something. Kickstarter will claim like, oh, half the traffic came from us. But, but I mean, there is a good amount of people who just browse Kickstarter and find things. And GameFound is, you know, mm-hmm. is the up and coming. But I, <laughs> all I can say is I bet you GameFound right now is crying in the corner right now because they just had a half million dollars of sales get canceled. So... Yeah, yeah. I think what what you might start seeing is you might start seeing these platforms or game file probably more likely since they have more of a mind of innovation currently is that they might actually do in-house ads. So you can pay to sponsor your project on the front page or at the bottom of the, of every campaign page or something. And that would be additional source of revenue for them. And that way you don't have people kind of trying to like bait the system. They just pay to get their product featured so that might be something uh, an interesting revenue opportunity for them they can thank me later when they implement it <laughs> <laughs> i think that it's a lot easier to get people to back a game on kickstarter and you know the game looks like it should have generated a million and a half dollars however maybe the the original backers of the game or maybe the game itself it was uh, there was something you know, there was a disconnect between maybe what the backers were expecting and then what happened like on launch. So uh, one of the things that they, you know, I'm sure that they'll do is they'll figure out, well, it, you know, I think they disband as a company, but normally we would recommend when client doesn't succeed or looks like they're not going to succeed or maybe even does, but doesn't raise the amount of money that they were expecting. We all, First thing we do is ask them to pull their backers and say, what do you think is keeping people out or or, um, you know, try to frame it in a positive way. But, you know, you might ask a question like, for the people that are on the fence right now about this project, what is the one thing that if, if, if it was changed or updated that would cause you to back this game? And sometimes you'll get a, a response that just tells you exactly what the problem is. So we had uh, one of our uh, clients that uh, is doing um, all, ter- all team wrestling. They are funded like over 300% right now on Kickstarter. They asked that question and there were there was a, a comment that was like, hey, the solo mode, I have to go all in to get the solo mode. And they were like, okay, let's turn that into a $15 add-on. And they solved a problem for, for, for people in the future that will find their campaign. They probably won that person as a backer, but you're able to diagnose problems because your people, maybe the people that followed along and didn't end up backing, were able to help you diagnose. And so I think that that's super important, Uh, but there's, to me, there's definitely a disconnect between what their audience was expecting as well as the offer they had. It it seemed to me they had a lot going for them. Um, They tried, maybe they set their ambition a little too high, Um, but you know, I, I think that it's in within the realm of possibility that they, they, they could have done one and a half million. Their Kickstarter campaign did 500K almost. Uh, they raised, what, uh, $458,000 from 4,300 backers for their for the original Uthia game on Kickstarter. And they were able to successfully deliver that. But their uh, GameFound campaign, I, I'm not sure, you know, but if those 4,200 people came back and then jumped on the expansions, they, you know you would have a lot of, I, I think that it would have done better, but there were only 2,100 and I'm, you know, and a lot of these are probably new. So 
I think they got locked into GameFound because of what they were offering. I don't know if you if you saw it, but of course, first of all, like I said, they had like nine different packages. But then they also had, I believe, individual purchases. Like if there was like a certain mini you wanted and certain things, that'd be a separate purchase. And of course, you know, you can't do that on Kickstarter. At least mm-hmm. not that I know of. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, so I think the, the reason I think they were sort I think they may have been stuck on GameFound because of what they wanted the op the options they wanted for for people to fund. And because, you know, GameFound actually offers these options that Kickstarter doesn't. But then, of course, if you use those options, you are stuck to their platform as opposed to Kickstarter. Now, also on top of that, I believe I personally believe if someone's got a very solid pre-marketing campaign, I don't think it really matters which major platform they use as long as they use a major platform. So, you know, Kickstarter, you know, like, you know, I think that's pre-marketing is a major a major influence. Or if you have an IP, you know, like Blade Runner. It's an IP, mm-hmm. you know, you know, it's going to be popular. It's, it's already got the pre-marketing built into the IP and you're set and you can market it on, you know, whatever, whatever platform you want. But I think they were also limited to the game found platform because of their options. One thing I'd say about Kickstarter is yeah. that it has a larger user base. And one of the good things about Kickstarter is if you have a friend that you're following who backs a project, you get a notification that they back that product. So there's that sort of added organic reach that you have on Kickstarter, which you just don't have in GameFound at the moment because it's, it's obviously smaller. So the, the the lines between Kickstarter and GameFound become blurred as GameFound grows over time. But I think that's a, a significant advantage that Kickstarter currently has. Again, that sort of leads to the Kickstarter becoming a social platform. Now, I, I, I don't have any uh, Kickstarter friends, so uh, I don't get those. To be honest, if I, I own Kickstarter, I would integrate right. uh, Facebook groups, <laughs> like communities, uh, within the platform and try to get people off of Facebook onto Kickstarter and that become like the, the hub of board game creation. That's what, that, that, that's what I would do if I, if I was the CEO. Yeah. <laughs> right now, I don't know if they have a CEO. I actually don't know who the CEO is, but I do know that the uh, previous Step CEO stepped down and I haven't followed up on that. That might be worth talking about as well because we, you know, Kickstarter was not going a direction that was supporting its you, what its user base wanted. They had this big hoopla a little while back where they announced that they were integrating blockchain technology into their site. And people were like, well, what about threaded comments though? <laughs> you know, what about, you know, all of these other basic things that we've been asking for that you're, you've not been giving us. And I think that uh, that was kind of the straw that, that, or maybe the issue that brought all of these other issues to light and made, you know, everybody kind of got all up in arms about blockchain technology on Kickstarter and like, why do that? And, you know, nobody asked for it. Right. So the, you know, I think that that was, that was probably the beginning of the end for the CEO and the way that they were leading the company. They gave GameFound the opportunity to step in as a new competitor and receive initial some initial uh, momentum and acceptance. It's like if Kickstarter's making bad moves, that will only serve to embolden competitors. And I think that GameFound is finally a legitimate competitor that you know took advantage of the uh, market uh, frustrations with uh, with Kickstarter. And you know, I still think at this moment that Kickstarter is bigger than GameFound. It's got more you know, more weight to throw around the game found, you'll probably raise more money on Kickstarter than you would game found, you know, for like a small project and that kind of thing. But game found is really proving itself for these big projects that are either mini heavy or 
you know, very large projects. They're like epic. I would use that term uh, to describe GameFound. I'd love to have that question answered. What is Kickstarter doing to compete with GameFound to stay ahead of its competition? Uh, what are your future plans and that sort of thing? Not sure they're going to want to reveal that to us, but, you know, because then GameFound would know. I'm sure that uh, Marcin listens to every single episode that we produce. And that's all the time we have for this week's episode of Crowdfunding Nerds. For some really great discussions, please visit our Facebook page at Crowdfunding Nerds Community. And of course, as always, there's also our lovely website at crowdfundingnerds.com. And we're going to have some special announcements later on about the update to our lovely little website. And of course, follow us as always on your favorite podcasting application, app, website, et cetera, et cetera. And until then, we will see you next week. Stay nerdy. See you on the flippy flip. Flapjack. Flap.